Hello, and welcome to the Mount St. Mary's University podcast, The Voice of Leadership with Dana Larkin-Sowers, Director for the Institute of Leadership, Ethics, Achievement, and Development, better known as iLead. Today's programming is a part of a year-long series that emphasizes people with disabilities and the resources, including those of the faith, that can assist them in living a life of significance. This is Dana, and I am honored to serve as the director of ILEAD, advisor for the National Society of Leadership and Success, and a teaching fellow for first-year symposium, communication, and sociology departments. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Monsignor Andrew Baker. Monsignor was ordained to the priesthood for the Diocese of Allentown in 1991, and has served in various parishes, including as the rector of St. Catherine of Siena Cathedral in Navarre, and a doctorate from the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross in Rome. Monsignor became the seminary rector here in 2015. Hello, Monsignor, and thanks for joining us. I've heard some great news about the population of the seminary. Can you share a little more with us about that? I'm very happy to share it with you, Dan. And first of all, thank you very much for this opportunity to be with you and to be recording this podcast. Uh, Our seminarians uh, count 156 this year. We have 156 seminarians from about 25 different dioceses. Uh, We are the largest Catholic American seminary in the United States, in the world, and as President Trainer likes to say, in the universe, <laughs> uh, because we've not been able to find any seminary on Mars quite yet. We're still exploring that as a possibility. But um, yeah, it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful opportunity and, and an honor to serve these men, 156 of them. Um, and a little known fact that I think is important to also keep in mind is that about uh, 15% of the seminarians were born uh, outside the United States. So we have quite a, a diverse group and large group here at the Mount. That is just such fascinating and, and wonderful news. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, Eileen is spending a year in research to support health and faith. We believe that there is a connection between health and faith. Why does the three-legged stool of mind, body, and soul often get out of balance? Well, to answer that question, I I just have one word, and it's the word sin. You know, since the time of Adam and Eve, we've been affected by what we call concupiscence, or this tendency towards sin that's that's part of our life. You know, St. Paul describes it as this battle within us between, he says, the man of the flesh and the man of the spirit. Uh, Because of that kind of disunity within us, and because, unfortunately, we we have this tendency to maybe emphasize one part of ourselves, the mind, body, or soul, over the other, and we get out of balance very easily because we're, we're not um, right. We're a little, if you don't mind me saying so, a little bit out of whack, a little bit disordered because of sin. Um, so we have to struggle, uh, and life is about, uh, with the grace of God, being able to continue to keep that balance of that three-legged stool of mind, body, and soul. Um, you know, Saint, uh, not, it's not St. Benedict, but Pope Benedict liked to say, the ways of the Lord are not comfortable, but we're not created for comfort, but for greatness. So striving for greatness sometimes means a, a struggle to keep those three in balance. Can you tell us a little bit about vices and virtues? Sure. Um, 
First, virtues. You know, in order to keep the balance, we have to be virtuous human beings. Um, there are principal virtues like prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Those are those main or cardinal virtues. And the word virtue itself comes from a Greek word that means the, the excellence of a thing. Now, for the Greeks, it meant that, for instance, a knife that you would have is virtuous because it's excellent. It's very sharp. It's very strong. It gets the job done that you need a, a, a knife to do. Or it they would describe a horse, for instance, an animal. And the horse is very swift and strong, and so it's an excellent horse. It's, it's virtuous. Um, that word virtue then, over time, really began to be used just for human beings, but it still has the same basic meaning. It's really, it's the powers within us, the habitual disposition to do good things um, that make us excellent human beings. So when we are prudent, when we're just, when we're, we're courageous, or we have the virtue of fortitude, or we're temperate, um, we are acting like a good human being. And we're also, in a certain sense, emerging as a good human being too, because excellence doesn't just come in an instant. It comes over time. So we have to practice these virtues in order to be a good or excellent human being. The mirror opposite of that, of course, are the vices. And those are sort of, um, there, there, there's, those are those actions that don't make us an excellent human being. It makes us, unfortunately, a worse human being than God wants us to be. Um, and so when we do something wrong, when we do a, a vice, um, something that's sinful, it's not as though we're becoming a better human being. We're actually not becoming such a good human being. We're becoming a, a bad human being, but because of our own choices, right? So we want to strive for excellence and be a virtuous human being, be, be good at being human. Uh, and that's done by a life of virtue. But we can fall back because of sin, once again, into a life of vice or, or start committing acts of vice. And that, that unfortunately dampens our excellence as a human being. Well, I'm... I'm very proud to say that I have been able to really observe some virtue today. Uh, my dear friend over here, Austin, um, usually there are two people working with the technical parts of this podcast, and one of them is in the emergency room right now. And so he decided that he was going to use his courage to step up and do this by himself. And and I think that's... That's leadership, yes? Yes, it definitely is. You know, one of the church fathers says that we're, in a certain sense, the father, father or mother of ourselves by the way we act. So we kind of, not that God creates us, obviously, but we become who we are by our actions. So if you're courageous like Austin, he becomes a courageous man. Indeed. Thank you, Monsignor. Let's take a break. when it comes to giving. So why not choose your mountain home? From enhancing academic offerings to athletic programming, your support ensures that our students continue to lead lives to significance. To make your gift, visit msmary.edu today. Welcome back, Monsignor. Can you share what sacramental resources the church provides for the resumption of spiritual health? Sure, I'd be happy to, Dana. You know, the, the sacraments, all of them, are really ways in which God works within us, right? And really helps us to become uh, even stronger as, as a Christian. And so the first sacrament, for instance, baptism, restores us to the right relationship with God. We talked at the beginning of the podcast about how we've been affected by sin since the, since the time of Adam and Eve. Well, baptism 
cleanses us of original sin and restores us to a right relationship with God. Um, that's the beginning of a, of a whole new life. We're, in a real sense, born um, as a child of God. We were born naturally, and this is being born supernaturally. So through the sacrament, one of the sacraments, the sacrament of baptism, we have an opportunity, really, uh, if we live according to our baptism, to be a child of God. Um, and then the other sacraments, too, you know, um, just as naturally we need constant nourishment, well, there's another sacrament, spiritually speaking, that nourishes us, and that's the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. So that sacrament continues to feed the children of God as we go through life, through its ups and downs. And uh, sometimes, too, we commit vices, for instance, and we commit sins, and we fall, and we, 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 we're not... Um, you know, living up to our commitment to be a disciple of Jesus. So we have another sacrament called the sacrament of penance. Uh, and that sacrament brings us God's mercy. Uh, so, you know, those, those particular sacraments, but all the sacraments really are helpful in living spiritual health. And if we're sick, we can be restored. If we're, if we're strong, the sacraments can make us stronger. How significant do you believe is an active prayer life? Now, there's a good question. Um, well, I always say to people, you know, think of it this way. When Jesus was on this earth, he's the Son of God. And we know from the Gospels that several times the Gospel writers report to us that Jesus spent time in prayer. A couple of times we even know he spent the entire night in prayer. So if people say, well, how important is an active prayer life if it was important for the Son of God it's obviously important for us. If we're trying to live the life of Christ in our life, it's not just an accessory, right? Um, we have accessories in our life, our watch, you know, your earring, um, something that we like to have on, but it's not essential, but we like to have on our rings, and those are accessories that we like to wear. Um, but it's not essential. So prayer isn't an accessory. It's something that's really essential to who we are. And it makes us, in a certain sense, uh, Christian in the, in the sense that it's the way in which we respond to the great gift that God has given us in, in making us his children. So we are back in relate, we, we give ourselves back in relationship to him, first and foremost, through, through prayer. Um, one of the great, more modern saints of, uh, of today, St. Teresa of Lisieux, who's also called the Little Flower, she was a Carmelite sister. She died at age 24, and yet she's one of the doctors of the church. And she said this about prayer. She says, prayer is a surge of the heart. It is a simple look toward heaven. It is a cry of recognition of love, embracing both trial and joy. And so how important is an active prayer life? It's absolutely essential. What a beautiful thought and a beautiful quote. Yeah. What method might you suggest can be applied to scriptural reading and meditation? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's becoming more and more popular, of course. The Bible is essential to our life of faith, uh, and especially using the Bible in our prayer life. Sometimes it's called Lexio Divina, or a, a divine reading, a reading of Scripture in a prayerful way. And my suggestions would be uh, just a few. Uh, first of all, for anybody who wants to kind of prayerfully read the Bible and use the Bible in their prayer, find a good one. Find a good Bible. It's a good translation, one that you can take with you, one that's easy to use. Um, 
And then also having a good commentary can help in your prayer too. Because sometimes Bibles will come with little notes, uh, whether electronically or in print. That can help too, especially if those if the, that commentary is more geared toward helping people to, to pray. Uh, and you can look at the passage and find the commentary, and it helps illuminate what's happening in, in the scriptures. But, you know, above all, I think in order to best use scriptures in, in meditation, I think it's the approach, the attitude that you have. And it's twofold. One is to remember that when you're praying with the scriptures, God is speaking to you and to me. The Bible is God our Father coming to speak to his children. They're his words. And remembering that is important. But also that when we use it in prayer, it's our way to talk back to God our Father. Um, He comes to his children to speak, and we have an opportunity uh, and an ample opportunity to speak back. Every once in a while, I meet people who say, you know, I don't know whether God speaks to me. And I honestly say, well, I can't get him to shut up because (laughs) there's so many ways in which he speaks to us and especially in the scriptures. And when we use it in our prayer, we we are then talking back to our God, our loving father. Yes. My husband recently um, got me new new scriptural uh, books and he got me um, the word on fire. Oh, by Bishop Barron. Bishop Barron. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, that has a lot of commentary in mm-hmm. there from saints of old um, right. and artwork and all kinds of things that I found very, very enriching. Yeah. So I definitely agree with you on that point. And an easy Bible to use for prayer because some people might be more visual, so they use the beauty in that particular version of the Bible because there's a lot of, as you said, a lot of beautiful artwork but also good commentary, too, if people like to read or use both, and it really helps them to pray. Okay, well, let's move to break. The team behind our team is our dedicated Mount fans. Please visit mountathletics.com to check the schedules of your favorite teams and to learn more about our great student-athletes. Go Mount! We look at the world today, and we see many things out of balance. What do you think is keeping our youth from the church's restorative gifts? Well, there's a good question because, you know, youth are on the mind of our Lord. You know, let the little children come unto me. A young man came to him with a question. Jesus was constantly reaching out to the young. Uh, and I think part of the difficulty has been that, that simply there's been a lack of an invitation. We just have to engage with young people today and invite them to the adventure of a discipleship with Christ. We, we shouldn't set up ourselves as Christians to be in some sort of castle or fortress and keep everybody out. But we should be engaging everyone, but particularly the young today, who are asking really good questions, who are in need of good answers and, and direction as well, who can make an incredible contribution to the life of the church and the life of faith. It just takes sometimes just, I don't know, an invitation But there are difficulties, of course. Uh, It affects both adults and young people today, and that is we're living no longer in an age of what we used to call Christendom, an age in which kind of the whole culture and family structure and institutions as well that, that supported a Christian way of life. It's just, it's less and less of that today. So we no longer live in that age. We live more in a a secularized age, an age in which 
you know, religion is, is put into the corner or is, is so um, privatized that uh, you can't even share it with someone else. You know, religion is personal, yes, but it's not private. And so we should be free. Uh, and we proclaim this even in our Constitution, free to be able to, to live uh, our faith. Um, but unfortunately, those pressures, those secularized pressures in today's society affect us all, and, and especially the youth, that sometimes keeps them from responding wholeheartedly or even hearing about faith and religion uh, in, the, in the public square. Um, I think, too, another, another thing that uh, Bishop Barron um, has been saying again and again in his contact with young people, especially through uh, the media, um, has been that there's, there's, there, there's been a false dichotomy put up between faith and science. You know, um, Faith and reason are not opposed to one another. But sometimes young people get the impression that they are opposed, and therefore I can either be a scientific person or a person of faith, but not both. Um, but faith and reason are really like two wings on a bird flying to, to, to truth. Um, God has placed in the human heart a deep desire for truth, and it's both faith and reason that can help us see the fullness of that, that truth. And, but because of this, again, this um, unfortunate uh, and false dichotomy between faith and religion, that sometimes young people question so much whether religion is even pertinent to their lives, because faith can give us all the answers. When in fact, it's really, we really look at, at both to, to the, those two wings, as Pope John Paul II said, that, that, that help us toward uh, obtaining uh, truth. What a beautiful image. Thank you for sharing that. When teaching our seminarians to minister to the Church of God, what do you believe are the central personal characteristics that are needed by clergy to minister? Well, three of them. That they're happy, that they're holy, and that they're zealous. A happy priest. I can't tell you how cheerfulness and happiness bring other people to Christ if they see a happy priest, right? And he's going to be effective that way, not only ministering to others, but he'll, his life, will, he'll feel content in what he's doing. So he's happy. He's holy, too. And holy, I, I mean that he's really got to strive to be a saint, because if he's inviting other people to be saints, he's got to be the first one. You know, he's got to lead. He's got to be out in front in, with regard to holiness. Because people today, they don't really need a priest so much to be a CEO, of a company, even though that's very important, right? Um, they don't necessarily need uh, a financial wizard or a, a mechanic, and those are all wonderful professions. Um, they don't need a construction manager who can, you know, put together something, uh, you know, building. And no, they need a holy priest. They need a man of God. Um, so happy, holy, and then zealous. And I think that's the final characteristic for priests today that they really are, they're on fire. You know, they, they, they love the Lord, and they want to share their love for the Lord with others. And that's what it means to be zealous. Well, I am happy to deliver the news that the seminarians that work here and I lead are all of that, Monsignor. They Absolutely. really, they really, really are. I'll mark that down. Right. And, the, you know, the students, um, they, they enjoy that so much. Yeah. And they lean toward that so much. And, uh, you know, to be a little fly in the room and watch that interaction is such a joy for me. I, I, I just have to tell you. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. We need that feedback. So of thank course. You. Can spiritual exercises replace 
religious rituals? Mm. Now, there's a good question. You know, traditionally, that phrase spiritual exercise refers to a retreat. But today, it doesn't so much, right? It's right. just kind of more exercising, if you will, the, the spiritual element that's in me, right? Um, but I don't, think, I don't think that, no, they can't replace religious rituals, but also the, the two are, are very much related. They're very complementary. They're not in competition with one another. So that religious rituals and prayers, et cetera, express the, the heart. Um, and it is the heart made for God. So those two really shouldn't be seen as, as uh, opposites or somehow in competition with one another. Um, it addresses certainly the deep need of human beings to, um, to act according to what St. Augustine said, you know, we are capable of God, we're capex day. We are capable of, of receiving God and of being his image and likeness in the world. And so because of that, we have a spiritual nature. That's true. And so we act according to that spiritual nature. At the same time, rituals help us engage our bodies, which is an intimate part of who we are. And if you look at religious rituals, it is an expression in a bodily way of what ought to be um, really going on interiorly. It's a way of connecting the interior with the exterior. Um, so that spiritual exercises and rituals really go together, it seems to me. Well, Monsignor, I just would really like to thank you for your leadership at our seminary and throughout the Mount community. And I'd like to personally thank you for allowing members of the seminary to engage and model for my students here in the ILEAD program. You're welcome. It's, they're good men. Indeed. Be sure to join us throughout the fall and spring every two weeks on The Voice of Leadership as iLead organizes and involves members of our campus and outside communities to support and celebrate family and friends with disabilities through the Mo Project.